Hey everyone, this is Kristen, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eating Disorder Recovery Speakers Podcast. Thank you so much for being here and being open to stories, inspiration, and guidance from other people who are in recovery from or who have recovered from their eating disorders. Hey everyone, I hope you are having a good day today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Every time I record, I feel the need to explain the background noises. And for some reason right now, my refrigerator is making this weird humming sound. You can hear it. So it'll go off at some point probably, but just FYI, that's what that is. So a few weeks ago when I was doing the introduction for Jen's podcast, I had mentioned the word integrity as being really important to me. And during that podcast, I mentioned it because Jen was trying to figure out which version of her story to tell. And I wanted her to be honest because I think that it's important that people hear the truth about what an eating disorder really is like. And this week, the idea of integrity came up again for me. So for me, especially in light of putting my story out and my voice out on a public forum, integrity also means knowing what I'm talking about and being willing to both learn and admit when maybe I'm wrong. And today's episode was actually recorded in two sittings because I found myself saying some things that I thought were true but that I wasn't actually sure were true. And then when we ended the interview, I just had this like feeling of it not being in integrity, like not feeling clean enough from the standpoint of integrity. And so, you know, I asked Jacqueline, the woman that I'm going to interview today, if she could record again parts of the interview and she said yes, and and she's amazing, and she totally got why. And so we did it in two sittings. And the timing of that was kind of perfect because a few days after the first time that we recorded, a blog post was shared in a Facebook group that I'm part of that really illuminated to me something about eating disorder recovery that I was unintentionally ignorant to. I was ignorant to it for sure, but I just didn't, I wasn't trying to be ignorant, but I think I was. And again, that's where my integrity kind of lies. So the blog post is called why I won't ever identify as recovered. And I'll share it in the episode notes. And it was posted in a group on Facebook for therapists and nutritionists that have a practice based on the health at every size mentality, which is something that we've been talking about on several of the podcasts that I've done. The text of the post was asking for reactions. So what I mean by that is like the woman that shared the blog post kind of said like, here's a blog post and here's a comment on it. And um, I'm wondering your reactions. And so she wanted reactions either way. So you know, always a being my company was sort of built on the premise that I feel like I have fully recovered and that I believe that other people can too. And so I commented that on Facebook and was kind of shocked at the responses that I got. And the responses weren't cruel. They weren't mean by any means, but it did feel like 
suddenly all of these people had these flashlights that they were kind of shining down this road that I had never even looked down before. And I felt a little bit, you know, a little bit bad about that, a little bit ignorant, like, holy shit, here I am thinking I'm doing this amazing work. And there's actually this huge part of eating disorder recovery that I am ignoring. And again, not because I was choosing to ignore it, but because I just didn't know. In the blog post, the author asks the question if full recovery is actually possible to all people. One sentence that she writes is, it is a privilege to even entertain the idea of full recovery. I think this is an incredible blog post and it's in the episode notes and I hope you take the time to read it. And as someone whose practice is built on full recovery being possible and as someone who all over my website says that I am someone that believes in equal access and as someone who is white and in a smaller framed body, when I initially read the post, I definitely felt uncomfortable and a little bit defensive. It sent me into a whirlwind of questions of all kinds, which centered around shit, am I actually a fraud? Is full recovery actually accessible to everybody? And by saying that I recovered and you can too, am I invalidating the experiences of people who didn't have the money to pay for treatment or who aren't believed that they have eating disorders based on what they look like or who are constantly oppressed or discriminated by society. So all of these questions, you know, over the past few days and really still today are kind of flooding my head. And to be honest, I don't really know what the answer is to these questions yet. One thing my teacher says is it's not what you don't know that's a problem. It's what you don't know that you don't know that's the problem. So before this blog post, I didn't know that this perspective on full recovery even existed. I mean, it was probably privileged and naive, but I was just like, how could telling people that they could fully recover ever do anything but good? And now that I'm aware of it, I might not know what I can do about it yet, but I least can start figuring out what that means and, and again, what it is that I could potentially do. I think that one thing that I don't say enough on this podcast is that Everything here, everything that I say is solely my opinion and it is based on my experiences only and I hope that my experiences can help you in some way and same goes for the people that I interview. It is their opinions based on their experiences of their recovery. Right now, and this is all subject to change, I do believe that intrinsically every single human being has the potential inside of themselves to recover. That being said, I also now realize that there is socioeconomic discrimination at play and that biases and fallacies in the medical treatment field that might make recovery nearly impossible for someone to entertain, let alone access, exists. And as a thin white woman, me saying that I fully recovered so you can too, for some people might be viewed as insensitive to their experiences. And if that's you, I'm sorry. I never even thought about it. My intention has only ever been to bring hope, 
to be a beam of support and light to help other people recovery. And hearing that full recovery was possible for me was really what I needed to hear. And so I hope that it does help you too. But if it doesn't, one thing that I really want you to hear is that life can get better with an eating disorder. So maybe that doesn't look like full recovery. But if your eating disorder thoughts only take up 70% of your head space or 50% or 30%, that is better than where you might be living now. And that is still something to strive for. Life can get better. You can feel better. My prices um, for one-on-one services and clients are pay what you can afford. They've always been that. It's something that I really firmly right now stand by because I want my services and I want recovery to feel accessible to everyone. And so in those ways, I feel like I'm I've kind of trying to be and have tried to be inclusive. And I also realize that there's a lot more that I can do and that there's a lot more that we as a whole community of people that want to help people feel better from eating disorders. There's a lot more that we all can do as well. I love Viktor Frankl. Um, He's a psychologist or he was a psychologist um, during World War II and he was taken into the concentration camps. He was imprisoned there in a few of them and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning and that is something that I read that I really took to heart and that really impacted me and I feel like a lot of what I do is based on his kind of therapy and so some of the quotes that I love that he says in Man's Search for Meaning is an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior you know so one thing we say is that your eating disorder serves a purpose or it served a purpose and you know a lot of times that purpose was a response to something abnormal you know something that quote-unquote shouldn't have happened but did and you didn't know how to deal with it and so you developed eating disorder tendencies and so he says an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior the other thing he says is he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how sharing my story and trying to help people is my is my why you know and I think knowing for a long time that that's something that I wanted to do helped me figure out the how was I going to get there Outside of this book, he has a quote that says, if we take man as he is, we make him worse. But if we take man as he should be, we make him capable of becoming what he can be. And when I was creating Always a Being, I really thought about that quote. And I interpreted that to mean that by saying full recovery is not possible, we limit how far people will go. We potentially undertreat the disorder. But by saying it is possible and having higher expectations and addressing more than just food and weight gain, we encourage people to reach further. Admittedly, this is an idealistic view of recovery, but I also know that this has become my reality and the reality of others. That being said, is what I'm learning is that a lot of people need to hear other things. You know, I hate saying that saying full recovery is not possible is the realistic approach because I also still think that full recovery is. But I'm learning that me being able to say full recovery is possible and having this idealistic view of recovery is a privilege that not everybody has. I don't really know where this will all lead to. 
but it is what has been on my mind a lot this past week. And I'm also really grateful for it. For any field to progress, we need to be open-minded. And I'm willing to always question my beliefs for the sake of moving eating disorder treatment further and for being able to impact and influence and affect more people. And it's actually perfect timing, like I said in the beginning, because I did record this in two sittings, and in the first sitting, Jacqueline, the woman that I interview and who's going to share her story today, talks about her PhD studies in post-feminist ideology, and she pretty much talks exactly about this, but as it relates to empowerment and not recovery or eating disorders, and you'll hear way more about that throughout the podcast. And I sort of got what she was saying the first time that I interviewed her, but in light of this blog post, in this thread on Facebook, now I have a much deeper understanding of what it is that she was actually saying. Jacqueline is a first-year PhD student and doesn't like to identify as recovered or recovering, as you will hear more about in today's episode. She prefers to measure her recovery in her ability to find balance in life and being able to connect with other people. In her story, she talks about a doctor putting her on a diet at the age of eight, how her perfectionism affected her eating disorder and her recovery, how hitting rock bottom and having a group of women help pull her out of that made a really big difference in her life, and how much she loves and is proud of the work that she's doing now. In her interview, we talk more about all of these things, as well as about what female empowerment actually is and what we can do after we have gained power to help other women do the same. So my story started back when I was about eight years old. Um, I'd grown up as always one of the bigger kids in my class. Uh, I was really tall for my age. Um, I always had I distinctly remember when I was in the first grade, I had a size six woman's shoe and I was bragging about it to all of my friends, but, um, which was weird, but I grew up and I was the size that I was, but I distinctly remember when I was eight, I went to the doctor and basically they had sat my mom and me down and told us that I was, you know, regardless of the fact that I was above average for my height, I was also above average for my weight. And my mom basically took that as the impetus for to get me dieting. So starting when I was about eight years old, I was put on pretty strict diets. Um, I remember seeing nutritionists, not for too long, but enough to have an impact on the way that I viewed food and the way that I learned about my body. Um, this was also policed pretty heavily, both by my mom um, and in the most loving and nurturing and, and kind and supportive way by her, but also I was teased pretty strongly um, by the other kids in my school. And uh, my family was really, really just uh, pretty brutal in the way that they talked about me and the way that they talked to me. So my uncles and my aunts, um, primarily my uncles, they would, you know, make pig noises at me when I, when I walked past them. And I had others that extolled the virtues of, of running and, and asked if I, had, if I had considered exercise and healthy eating as if 
these were not the messages that were being sent to me from every single person in my life. Um, there were a group of boys in my brother's grade who called me the whale. It was at the time of AOL screen names and someone uh, actually made a screen name that was, it's a whale one, two, three. And it was just directly mocking me. So I grew up with this really, really just poor understanding of, of what my body was and what my body meant to other people and who was allowed to make decisions about my body and who was allowed to comment on my body. Um, but I was pretty resilient as a kid. I played a lot of sports. I didn't really care too much about what other people were saying. Um, I just remember being really, really bossy and really, really stubborn and really, really outspoken. So when people would say those sorts of things to me, I just really bounced back pretty fast until I got into the sixth grade when I developed my first very serious crush on um, a boy in my class. And when he, um, when he did not reciprocate these very strong feelings that I had in grade six, I just assumed that it was because I was fat because I was overweight, right? Because that was what I had been told my whole life, that sure, I you know, was an A student, sure, I was an all-star sports player, sure, I loved singing and dancing, and I was you know, slotted for the, the lead role in the musical that year, but I was always fat, and fat was always a problem in my family and for me growing up. So that was the first time I started with pretty serious restriction um and I was 10 so looking back on that that's that's not good but it didn't last very long uh grown-ups intervened pretty quickly because my weight dropped really fast and I got back on track in healthy eating um pretty not even necessarily healthy eating but just normal eating went back to being a kid for a while but then I got into high school and my confidence just plummeted. I don't even remember exactly what happened. Just a series of, you know, top dog phenomenon. I went in thinking that I was hot shit and realized very quickly that I wasn't. And I was having some difficulty with, with girlfriends and I wasn't, I felt very lost when I got into high school. And Ultimately, the same realization that I had when I was in the sixth grade came back to me. And that was, or at least the same perception of the situation was that I was too fat. I was too fat to have friends in high school. I was too fat to succeed in high school. I didn't get the lead role in the musical because I was too fat to get the lead role in the musical. It was the only explanation I, I could think of because I was doing all of the same things. I didn't feel like I had changed too much, except I still had this burden of my body that really interfered or at least in my perception it, it interfered with with all these different areas of my life so I didn't really engage in disordered eating for a while but I had such poor body image at the during the first few years of high school I think back to this story all the time but I used to draw green X's on my body, like on the parts of my body that I didn't like. Um, I remember that I had heard about a fraternity doing that to a bunch of girls as a hazing uh, 
process. And I just remember thinking, that's such a good idea. Then you'll always be aware of it. And then you'll be thinking about it more and then you won't eat as much. And in my brain, that made so much sense. So I would wear just like long clothes, uh, long pants, sweaters, just to hide all these weird green X's I had all over my body. Um, and then I was doing musicals as well. And I just remember loving, loving, loving musical season because I was in rehearsal all day, so I didn't have to eat. So that obviously was not good. Um, and then things really, I mean, this was sort of a period of flux during the time when I was in high school. I had bad body image. I didn't like my body at all. I was not treating it well. Uh, I was constantly on diets. I lived on just like cereal bars. But I was definitely eating enough to maintain my weight. Um, then my senior year, I started dating this guy who for a very long time made me feel like the most wonderful beautiful lovely princess in the entire planet um and then I left for college and a month in I found out that my mom had been diagnosed with uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS which I had never heard of uh, it was before the ice bucket challenge before the theory of everything and, but basically I learned that my mom had about two years to live. So I struggled with that news. I became intensely emotional. Um, I stopped eating because maybe because I thought that this had happened because I was fat, I don't know. But in my brain, it made sense to stop eating. Um, and I just struggled. This was my first semester of college and I found out the news about my mom in September. I was a complete wreck all through December. I mean, couldn't really do much of anything. I was involved in a musical and I still went to my classes and whatnot, but I used them to distract myself. And really, I, I just lost so much weight so fast um, and I was away from home so nobody knew nobody could intervene um, so eventually in December the boy that I had been dating left me because I was a train wreck <laughs> and I went back home because I realized that I was not really safe to be by myself and it was also the Christmas break and as soon as I got home, my family saw me and basically just didn't know what to do. And so they drove me to a treatment facility where I was diagnosed with anorexia. And they recommended that I do an inpatient stint because I was really, really pretty far gone at that point. Um, but I had just been cast in another musical the next semester and I told them that I really needed to go back to school. Um, at that point they suggested um, an inpatient, or I'm sorry, an intensive outpatient program. And I basically just said, I don't know my rehearsal schedule. I don't really know what I can do about that. But they told me that it was necessary and that I needed to stabilize myself. And so I was willing to give up the musical 
and then I went out and I told my family what the doctors had suggested. And I just distinctly remember my mom looking up at me and saying, do you really think you need that? And so in my brain, not wanting to do it anyway, not wanting to regain weight, not wanting to get treatment, finally feeling okay in my body, I, or at least thinking that I felt okay in my body, I, I said, no, I don't need this. I don't, I don't need this treatment center. I can go back to school and everything will be fine. So <laughs> that was not a good idea, but I did go back the next semester and I was dead set on gaining weight and I did it in just like a yucky kind of not eating healthy way. Um, but I did regain the weight that I had lost and, you know, I, I, it was good that I had gained the weight. It was good and it was bad. It was, it wasn't right. And I, I didn't ultimately end up getting the therapy that I needed. Um, so I spent that summer doing a yoga teacher training because that was what I felt I needed to manage my stress. Uh, and I was able to maintain my weight, uh, my you know normal weight during that time. But then I went right back to school in August and it the cycle just restarted. Uh, I considered myself to be like an activist for eating disorders at the time. Um, you know, I didn't want anyone else to struggle with what I had struggled with because I believed that I had healed myself by eating whatever it was that I had eaten to regain my weight. But I was, I was heavy in restriction and I was just extolling the virtues of recovery. It was very, very, very hypocritical. But I couldn't, put that together. You know, I, it was my coping mechanism for the fact that I was basically watching my mom die. Um, and I don't know if, if anybody listening is familiar with ALS, but it's a, just a slow, horrible, painful, not painful for her, but painful for the people around her process to, to just bear witness to someone um, really just you know, losing control of their body. Um, you know, uh, first it was um, a drop foot and then it was complete paralysis. She couldn't speak. She couldn't breathe on her own. She couldn't eat on her own, obviously. It was just, it was tough, tough to bear witness to. Um, and so basically the same thing went on um, my second year of college where I, was restricting the whole time. Um, I went home for Christmas break, but basically told my family that I was doing fine. Uh, I didn't need help. Remember, just like last Christmas, I didn't need help then. I don't need help now. I'll get it under control. Um, went through the year. Uh, I was accepted my second year of undergrad into a master's program for the following year because I had really just chosen to focus so solely on school as, as a way to block out everything that was going on around me. The fact that I was dealing with a psychological disorder as well as the grief of everything going on with my mom. Um, but so I started that in August and it was so hard. Um, I was two years younger than most of my classmates and I had so much less research experience I really had no idea what I was doing. And I was extremely ill at the time. Um, 
So I was trying my best, but I was really just obsessive about my schoolwork and obsessive about counting my calories. Everything I felt needed to be micromanaged. And it all came to a screeching halt in December when my mom died. Um, And I had not seen her for, I mean, I went home for Thanksgiving, but I hardly spoke to her. I hadn't seen anybody for months. All that I had seen was like the inside of my calorie counter chart and the inside of my biopsychology textbook. I even remember my aunts came to tell me that my mom had died. And I, the first thing I asked was, do I need to go home? I have finals next week. So there was just this fundamental disconnect in my understanding of reality at the time. But I, this happened December 10th, um, December 10th, my mom died. And I was back at school in January under what I, because I had told myself that that was what my mom would have wanted for me. She would have wanted me to go back to school. She would have wanted me to not stop my life. Um, and to just, you know, be a, a rock star, superhero, badass academic, because that was what she wanted for me. And she always thought that I was so smart and she didn't want anything to stand in my way, including my weight. Um, so I went back to school and I was inconsolable. I, I don't remember eating anything between like January and April and I was exercising and I wasn't seeing anybody. And then finally it it got to a point. I remember distinctly, it was one night. Um, I remember because uh, it was the night that Villanova won won the NCAA championship. Um, So it was some big March madness basketball thing. Um, And all my friends went out celebrating that night. And I just remember it being so cold and I had like no body fat on me. And so I, we won, I went outside because we stormed our quad and I just couldn't feel my legs. And so I tried to, as much as I could walk back to my dorm room and I got to the steps and I had to pick my legs up to get up to the top because I was just, I was so weak. I was dehydrated. I was, I was ill. Um, And then I remember getting, finally, somehow getting up to my dorm room. um, And I realized that I had peed all over myself because I'd lost control of my kidneys at that point. And it wasn't the first time that it happened. Um, So that was... That night was my rock bottom. Uh, As I laid in bed after having taken a shower, I just felt my heart beating really, really, really fast. And I, um, I just remember thinking to myself, if I died in my bed here right now, because I was in a single dorm room, nobody would have noticed. Nobody would have come to find me. And I just remember having, I just remember having that thought and realizing that I needed to do something that could not be my lived experience. That couldn't be my life. Um, And I, by some miracle, a friend of mine reached out to me at about two in the morning just to say, hey, I'm thinking about you, it's been so long. Um, 
And I just broke down to her in the middle of the night and she just listened and made sure that I was heard and she, she didn't know what to do, but she really like just talked me off a ledge. Uh, and the next day I, because I was at a Catholic school, not because I'm particularly religious, but I spoke to a priest and he got me in to see the, the right people. And I went home uh, and I saw my doctor and I told her that I did not want to leave school. I just wanted to set up a therapist, uh, get myself set up with a therapist so that when I was home for the summer, then I could see her then. And she just basically looked at me dead in my sunken eyes and said, Jacqueline, do you really want to go back? And I just remember crying <laughs> because I, nobody, or at least I'd never thought about what it was that I wanted. I was just living for everybody else. So I said, no, I don't want to go back. Um, and I was admitted to the Renfrew Center um, probably less than a week later. They had recommended, again, that I do an inpatient treatment because I was so, I was really medically compromised. But it was really, really expensive. And I knew my family would have paid for it, but... I didn't feel comfortable asking them for it. I wanted my recovery to be something that nobody else was responsible for. I wanted it to be my financial decision. My, I just wanted it to be mine. I didn't want it to be anybody else's. So when I told them that I wasn't able to afford the inpatient treatment, they recommended a partial hospitalization. So it would have been nine to three every day. And that was what I ended up doing uh, for three weeks. But I, so I had to leave school ultimately, ironically. Um, I refused to get to see a therapist when I was in school, yet I had to actually leave school to seek treatment. But I, yeah, so the first three weeks I was in a day program and I just took to it. I, I, thrived when I was in recovery. But I was extremely perfectionistic about it. So at Renfrew, we had a meal plan where we had to eat a certain number of, you know, starch exchanges and, um, and protein exchanges. And I followed that to a T where I was measuring things. And I, you know, I would go out to eat with my friends, but I couldn't eat like everybody else because I was obsessed with my meal plan. Um, and so that ended up being addressed as well in therapy, my just perfectionistic and obsessive compulsive tendencies that I'm sure I developed through my schooling as well. Um, but after three weeks, even though I was supposed to do 10 weeks, they transitioned me down to an intensive outpatient program. So I was there for nine hours a week. So it was just three hours a day, three days a week. Um, and I spent the next seven weeks doing that. And I restored my weight um, with the help of the just miraculous team of supporters, um, friends, family, therapists, dietitians. And I felt great. I really, really 
I mean, it was difficult to gain the weight and obviously it was difficult watching my body change, but I knew that it was something that I needed for myself. I finally felt like I was doing something for myself. I think back to my doctor asking me what it was that I wanted and what it was that I wanted was to be a healthy, happy, functioning human being who had friends and didn't obsess about every single thing that went into her body that didn't feel this compulsive need to exercise. Um, and I ended up going back to school for um, the second year of my master's or the last year of my master's. And it was just, everything was different. I was able to go out to eat with my friends. I was able to skip my, uh, to skip my workouts. I was able to practice yoga, not for weight loss or weight control, but just because it made my body feel good. And I enjoyed being around other people who were also making their bodies feel good. Uh, I finally started dating again. I didn't do as well in school and as I probably could have. I still did fine. Um, but I just didn't care. I, I was so excited to be alive and by the prospect of what it was that I could be, that the duties and the tasks to which I had really just been diligent and obsessive, they just didn't seem as important because I had a life to live. And so it wasn't perfect, but it didn't need to be. And I think that was what was so great about it was that I didn't hold myself to any sort of impossible standard for my recovery. And I still try not to, but it really did sort of come full circle for me when I was accepted to um, a PhD program in Canada, which is where I am now. And I thought that I would be studying eating disorders and uh, mindfulness with yoga-based interventions for treating or you know, helping individuals with eating disorders. But since I've gotten here, I have found a passion for something else entirely. Um, so right now I study empowerment and the things that women do to feel empowered as well as power more broadly. And what happens when you go past empowerment? What happens when it's not about making yourself feel good, but it's about making others feel good and giving people opportunities to thrive and succeed and be happy and be confident. And I just absolutely love what it is that I do. It makes me feel like I have a purpose that is so much higher than anything, any message my eating disorder could possibly send me. And it's interesting because as I was preparing to speak for this, I was, I was asking myself, like, do I identify as recovered? Do I identify as recovering? Do I, how do I define my relationship with my, dis, with my eating disorder? And I think ultimately my answer is just that I, I don't. My eating disorder isn't really a part of my identity anymore. I mean, I guess I would identify as if I needed to recover ing, but 
my relationship with my with food and with my body is not really about feeling really really positive or feeling really really negative anymore it's just about having a body eating when i'm hungry because those are the things that i need to do in order to do the work that i'm passionate about so ultimately where am i now I feel like I'm at a place where I am happy enough with my body and I'm happy enough with my eating, but I don't feel this intense pressure to love every single aspect of myself or love every single aspect of my physical appearance or eat perfectly clean, flawless meals that are planned out I just don't feel that pressure anymore because I know that what it is that I'm doing with my life right now is so much more important than any relationship that I could have with food or my body. It's about a relationship with other people. It's about empowering others. It's about doing good work. It's about getting a PhD. It's about being a full human being. Uh, and I know that in order to do that, I need to be nourished. That's Jacqueline's story. If it resonated with you, or if you think the concept of this podcast is a good one, please help other people find it more easily by rating it on iTunes, maybe leaving a comment or sharing it with other people who might also find it helpful. In her interview, we talk more about what it was like to be age eight and be put on a diet. We talk more about her rock bottom and coming out of it. We talk more about what it is that she studies and the idea of empowerment as it relates to women. And and we talk about the saying, empowered women empower women and what that really means. On to her interview. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your Saturday and working and school and all of that to be able to tell your story and offer hope and inspiration and some guidance for people that might currently be struggling with an eating disorder. So really, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I was excited that I was able to get in touch with you. Yeah, me too. I you're the first person actually that like everybody else that I've interviewed so far I've either known or someone that I've known has known. So you're the first one that was like I found out about your podcast and I'd love to be on it. And that's amazing because I want, you know, as many communities and as many people to hear this and to reach as many people as possible. And so I'd like to broaden out of my own circle of people. I mean, I have an amazing circle of amazingly recovered people, but broadening outside of that is also something that I'm really interested in. So truly, thank you for reaching out and and being so proactive and like, I want to be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of what it is that I do now is um, finding a way to have my voice heard. Um, And so something like this I feel like is is just a, a great outlet, particularly given how many people listen to podcasts and that the audience free. that I'm trying to reach. Yeah, and they're free, so that's yeah. good too. My favorite thing about podcasts is yep. <laughs> So where I want to start today is where you started your story when you were a child and your mom taking you to the doctor and the doctor telling your mother that 
you might want to be put on a diet. And I'm curious about what your, what effect, first of all, that that had on you as a kid. And second of all, what your thoughts are around that and weight stigma, especially like as a child, prepubescent little girl. Um, what, what can you speak to for that? Yeah. So I obviously now know how insidious those sorts of messages are for particularly young children and particularly young girls, as if I wasn't going to have all of these messages thrown at me through every media outlet, every sign, every person um, in my life. So going to the doctor when I was eight and being told that my body was too big and that something needed to be done about it was horrible. Because basically, I never... I didn't learn how to enjoy food. I always was afraid of food because I always thought food was going to be the thing that made me fat. I always knew that food was the problem in my life, or at least I learned that food was the problem in my life. I was told that food was the problem in my life. So that was bad. And I also learned to believe that I was a person who needed to be changed. I was a person who wasn't okay as I was. And I had no medical problems at the time at all. I was growing. I was a, I was an eight-year-old girl whose body was changing because my body was changing. I don't know. It just, looking back, it all, it all just seems so ridiculous. If a person has is at risk for a disease, then they should alter their habits so that they don't develop the disease. If I had high, if I had high cholesterol as an eight-year-old, maybe I shouldn't have eaten things that would increase my cholesterol. But it's not about weight. It's never about the size of your body. That's just our society's stigma against people with larger bodies. So right now, I am um, learning more and more about health at every size. And we study weight stigma in my lab here. And it's just such a radically different approach to understanding health and legitimate, true, genuine health that is disentangled from societal expectations of women's and men's bodies for that matter. Um, So yeah, don't put kids on diets, A. And I think that a lot of this has come through. We just spoke about this, but a lot of this has really come up in the Weight Watchers push that Um, they're promoting for teens now. Uh, I personally saw my dad on Weight Watchers when I was growing up, and I put myself on Weight Watchers in high school. And it's just, you know, it's a gateway drug, right? So, you know, you start counting points, and then you start counting calories. I am very anti-diets, anti, particularly anti-diets in kids. I was a personal trainer for a while full time and I had a client who I think she was 10 and she was a little like chubby little kid, but only because she had all this baby fat still on her. It was so obvious that she hadn't grown yet. You know, she was still a little girl and her dad called me up one day because he was so angry that her doctor had said that she still hadn't lost weight. And I remember saying to him like that was never my goal 
with your child. My goal was to have her twice a week and take her outside and have her run around and jump rope and play catch and be active and start to have a love and appreciation for moving her body and living in her body. But it was never to lose weight because she's too young to have to, number one, she's too young to have to ever worry about that. And two, by all other accounts, she was a healthy girl. You know, there was just no, there was just no need to even have to think about that. Well, it's interesting too, because the father, it sounds, wanted her body to be smaller. It, it doesn't sound like it had anything to do with health whatsoever. No, he was just going based on the doctor. You know, the doctor was like, your kid's got to lose weight. And so he was pissed at me as her trainer for not helping her lose weight. What is your relationship with your body now? So I have a pretty interesting relationship with my body now. Um, In a sense, I do sort of feel like I've allowed myself to relinquish control of my body somewhat for the sake of understanding how my body has influence over other people and not in like a weird like sexual way, but in the sense that I know that other people can view my body. And if my main goal in my life, which I really genuinely believe is to have to serve as a positive role model for young girls, then I have to understand that when girls see me, they may potentially see themselves. They may potentially compare themselves to me. I need to make sure that my body stays at a weight stays in a place where girls can look at me and not feel like they need to change their bodies, where girls can look at me and feel comfortable and not threatened. So it's interesting and it's been, I will admit as someone who has struggled with an eating disorder, it has been difficult, but over the past three, two and a half, two and a half to three months, I have been consciously trying to gain weight for the sake of doing just that. So when I moved to Canada, which is where I am now, I um, it was stressful. I was 23, I moved to another country and I started a PhD program by myself where I don't know anybody. And whether it was an eating disorder thing, whether it was conscious or not, regardless, I ended up losing weight. So when I got my senses back, Um, Back in January, I made the conscious decision to restore my weight on my own. It wasn't medically necessary. I wasn't necessarily having, you know, physical complications. Nobody was saying like, wow, like you've gotten too thin or anything. But I felt for myself that I needed to take responsibility for my recovery. And, And so I made the choice. So my relationship with my body now... It's definitely complicated. It's it's hard to balance knowing um, that my body is is something that is perceived by others while also managing the fact that it is something that I am perceiving for myself, right? So yes, I am really trying to take the social justice perspective on it, but at the end of the day, it is, it is challenging, you know? Um, Gaining weight is not fun, it, particularly when you're someone who has struggled with an eating disorder. Uh, so balancing the two 
it has been a challenge, but it is worth it. And at the end of the day, I just have to remind myself that this is important. This is important for my health, legitimately my health. And this is important for the work that I'm trying to do. If my recovery is not genuine, then it's bullshit. <laughs> and that's it. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that you say that here because we were also just talking about, you know, what, what, I guess, what does a bullshit recovery versus like, uh, I don't know what the opposite of a bullshit recovery is, but like an authentic or a true recovery actually look like. And the realm that you and I were just talking about it in was in relationship to what you say in your story about kind of being a perfectionist, right? And how, when you started to get treatment, you were kind of like the perfect, um, Perfect patient. Patient, yeah, the perfect patient too. And this reminded me of when I was in treatment because I was also very much like that to the point of where like my homework and treatment was to go break a rule, you know, because they were just like this, this need for perfection was actually part of my sickness. And, um, and so it's interesting because in your story, obviously you talk about being a perfectionist, but I think this idea of having the perfect recovery and being the perfect patient is also really interesting. And one example you give is when you went out to dinner with your friends, like not really being able to sit and just enjoy and have dinner because you needed to stick to your meal plan. And um, I think meal plans are necessary. And I think that I get needing to stick to your meal plan, especially in the very beginning stages of recovery. Um, but when recovery is only about food and sticking with a meal plan, is that actually true recovery? And that's where you and I were again talking about, like, you felt like your recovery was kind of bullshit if that's all that it was. And um, so I, I guess if you could speak a little bit more to that of what, you know, what are these, what is like a bullshit recovery to you? And in what ways did you access, like, to you, what is a true authentic recovery from an eating disorder? Okay. So my perspective on recovery and meal plans is that there's a time and a place. It was absolutely necessary for me to be on a meal plan when I first, when I was in treatment, I did a partial hospitalization program. A, they needed to monitor what I was eating. B, I needed to monitor what I was eating. I had to relearn how to, well, I just talked about how I didn't want, to, I don't now want to have a relationship with food. I needed to have some sort of basis, some bedrock foundational understanding of how to nourish myself. but. That's part one, that's stage one. And getting stuck in that is still just managing the symptoms of your eating disorder. It's not recovering, it's not being recovered from your eating disorder. So I think it's an intermediary step. I think that potentially the ultimate phase is, again, relinquishing that control and letting yourself be a human being. I talked about having relationships with others versus relationships with food again, but I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. I don't want my life, I don't want my experiences to be defined by the food that is present or absent, the food that I am eating or not eating. What for you then does true recovery look like? So like what I'm hearing is connection, like not just connection with food, but true recovery is like, what does a connection with other people actually look like? To me, true recovery means that it's not every part of your life. It means that when you go out to dinner, you're focused on other people. 
it means that it's something that is just sort of a background thing that's happening. And I think also it means not putting so much pressure on yourself. It's more along the lines of, I don't know, just balance, you know, a, a healthy balance. Some days I will eat more than other days. Some days I'll go to bed a little bit hungrier than other days. And some days I'll go to bed feeling completely stuffed. But that's life. It happens. And I guess that getting to that point is, in my brain at least, the goal of recovery. Just sort of letting that control go for the sake of living your life. My self-esteem and my self-worth are not based on how much I have or have not eaten that day. And I think that is the pivotal part of this. The breaking the ties between self-esteem and self-worth and eating or not eating, because that I think is the eating disorder. At least it was for me. But now, and I'm not, again, I'm not perfect. I fuck this up all the time. And there are days that are harder than others. But ultimately, I know that my worth as a human being and the work that it is that I'm doing are not related to whether or not I ate that extra damn cupcake last night. Right. Regardless of what you've eaten or not eaten, the person that you actually are is where the self-confidence and the self-love can start to actually come into play, right? So like learning to appreciate these things about yourself rather than in the eating disorder, basing everything on what you've eaten and like what you look like or what you weigh. I want to talk more about your rock bottom. So, you know, some people I think in recovery hit rock bottoms, other people don't hit rock bottoms, but you had mentioned like there was a night in your life where you knew that that was your rock bottom. And what I, I don't want to say like what I love about that, but what is inspiring to me is that you hit rock bottom and you chose to go up. Like you don't have to go up. Not everybody makes that choice. Um, so I'd love it if you would talk a little bit more about one, your rock bottom, and two, how were some ways you slowly, slowly, slowly started to creep back up? Okay. So I think that night in my dorm room was really, really radically life-changing for me because I had had a night or a period of time right around the time when I was first diagnosed with my eating disorder, when I thought that I had hit my rock bottom. And so to be at a point that was below my what I thought my rock bottom was going to be um, was horrifying to me. Um, the thing that really helped me after I had that night um, where the night of the basketball game, I... Um, it, it really was just these tremendously passionate and compassionate and loving and caring women who swooped in to help me. I, um, so the first of whom was the therapist that I spoke to the next day, who encouraged me to go home and take care of myself, to take care of myself. The next being the doctor who I saw who encouraged me to, again, take care of myself. And then I um, 
shout out to my Aunt Mary, who I don't know if she'll ever listen to this, but when I was admitted to Renfrew, they told me that I was not allowed to live in my home. I have a rather tumultuous home life. And so she did not even skip a beat and said, I'll take her. So I lived with my aunt that summer. Um, and I just, I began connecting with all of these outstandingly wonderful, loving women in my life. They just really swooped up and carried me forward. My mentor at the time who I was working on my thesis with never for one second doubted my competence and my capability. It was, I was just so in awe of the women around me that I began to realize that I could be all of these things and women can be all of these things when they're not so focused on what it is that they're eating and what it is that their body looks like. So what helped me crawl back up? I didn't crawl. I was pulled by tremendously powerful women. I love that imagery, like not crawling, like someone threw you a rope and was like, let's get all these other women to pull you back out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I am... I'm not particularly spiritual, but I do think that it's interesting now that we're having this conversation that it was the loss of the prominent female figure in my life that really got me, that really made me feel so lost. And I do think that coming now full circle that I study feminism and that I so strongly identify as a feminist, I engage in feminist collective action. I... I I was on a date last night and I told the guy that I am a, what was, what was the term that I used? Um, didn't say radical feminist. Raging. I did. Yes. I said <laughs> raging feminist. And, that's, what I, um, that's what I would describe myself too. I know. <laughs> and he had no idea how to respond. And I just, I, I had a moment of being like, well, it is what it is. And you know you're with the right guy when you can call yourself a raging feminist. And he's like, me too. Oh, bless. But I, get, actually- I always get jealous of my friends whose like partners, like male partners go to like women's marches with them. I'm like, yes, you have found the man. Bless. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is interesting how it really has come full circle. One thing like I remember when I was really sick was like I hated being a woman. You know, like there was nothing, I hated having curves. I hated having boobs. I hated having a period. Yeah. Like I wanted to be like a 10 year old prepubescent girl or boy for like ever. Um, And I don't feel like that anymore. You know, I love the fact that I'm a woman. I think that there are so many things that the female body is capable of that the male body's not, you know, and Mm -hmm. we have um, this unique power, right? I mean, in so many ways, just like intuition and like fluidity, but like being able to create life. Yeah. To make people. Yeah. You make a person and not only do you make a person, but like you house it and you feed it and like, and then you give birth to it. And it's like your breast milk has like a scent to it that it's only your child. Like there's just like so many things. Mind blowing. My best friend just had a baby. So it's like watching this whole process. I was like, holy shit. Like what is this? Right. Um, and that's something that I like totally feel. And I, I just think women, like if you're not proud to be a woman, that's such a good place to start in your recovery. You know, like there's nothing wrong with having a womanly body. There's nothing like, there's just, 
there's so many amazing things about being a woman. And again, this is where I think there's this paradigm shift in the entire world happening right now that like women are going to take over beyond eating disorders. Like all of this other stuff is amazing about your body and being a woman. And just being a person outside of your body. I wrote a blog post recently and it's, it's awesome that we're kind of having this conversation, I think one or two days after the whole um, like international women's day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wrote a blog post a while ago called women that run with the wolves. Cause that's one of my favorite books ever. And it was about my like newly found, I guess it's kind of newly found, but newfound love of being a woman. And in the blog post, I talk about like Beyonce being one of those big factors of why I love being a woman, just because I love her song, um, who run the world. Mm. Uh, she's got a quote in there. That's like, uh, or the lyric is shoot. What's the lyric? Something we're strong enough to make the millions and bear the children and then get back to business. Then get back to business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, so there was like that, that just that whole concept. I think too, that there is, also so much room in this conversation though for for transgender women as well and and women yeah women who who aren't capable of of you know reproducing for as you had mentioned for any number of reasons um so there is a celebration of the female body but there is also just a celebration of the solidarity women can have with one another Mm -hmm. with anyone who who feels this this intense in-group membership with the, with the rest of us, right? I think this is kind of a good segue. And obviously we've been talking, I think, just generally about this. But I want to hear more about what you do. So you're in a PhD program. And like you had said originally, you thought you were going to go in for eating disorder work because, you know, you had lived it. And, I'm, and I, I know a lot of people that did go back to school and were like, I don't want to do that. And then kind of fell into that anyway. So I love that you're like, actually, I've got this whole other passion that now I'm going to go pursue. And so I want you to tell me more about what it is that you do now. What are you studying? What are you learning? What are you finding out? Yeah. Um, I am, I have a sick obsession with the passion that I feel for the work that I do. Um, my poor advisor, I send her probably like 80 emails a day, just with ideas and connections and things that I'm finding in books I'm reading and quotes I I'm loving and I um but passions aside uh I study post-feminist ideology which is basically like post-feminism has been defined as a sensibility a cultural psychological affective lens through which we can sort of understand culture today so it's rooted in the idea that feminism is over women have you know, women are wonderful. They've achieved their complete equality in this world. Take a look at, you know, schools. Girls are doing pretty well. Take a look at companies. There's some CEOs, right? Some of them are women. Eh. Um, and also this intense sexualization of culture, this neoliberal meritocracy-based ideology where if you if you work hard, there are no more systemic barriers to your success. So you, if you work hard enough, you will have all the success that any man would have. Um, And if you fail, that is your fault and you deserve shame and blame for it. Um, It also, it's interesting because this set of of ideologies um, 
is it can be applied in so many different areas. So I do look at it through, or at least I will, I'm still a first year PhD, so I'm still getting, getting my feet, get my feet wet, but, um, it can, it makes sense to me through, um, a weight stigma lens as well, right? Where you are in complete control of your body. And so there's no excuse to not have the quote unquote, the perfect body. You're in complete control of what it is that you eat. So again, you should be eating, you should be eating clean. You should be eating exclusively organic, you know, raised by the moon kind of plants and, and just all of that neoliberal nonsense. Um, I look at it, I think it's, it's a way to understand eating disorders as well. Um, but right now I'm looking at it simply through the context of empowerment. And what does it mean for women to be empowered? And I had asked this question in, in sort of in a rhetorical sense in, in my, in my interview or um, in my story a bit earlier, but what does it mean when you are empowered? What's next? Why is it that we exclusively sell empowerment to women and men don't need to do all of these things to feel empowered? What does it mean to have power? So those are the questions that I'm looking at right now. And um, I just, I just love it. I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to like what you and I were talking about. So like empowered women and power women, that saying, um, if you can speak to that saying and then kind of like where you feel like personally, I guess you fall into that, like your mission or your purpose um, and what you're doing. Right. So I guess what I'm looking at right now, I'm about to begin my comprehensive examinations on the subject of power. And it's been interesting to me as I'm reading these power theories that I was never told as a girl that I was supposed to have power or that I was supposed to even want power. As a matter of fact, power was something that I feel like I actively avoided. You know, I didn't want to be bossy. I I didn't want to be perceived as unladylike. Um, I wanted to be the perfect woman, ultimately, is what it comes down to. Um, And yet, I was so in search of this idea of empowerment. How can I empower myself? And then I learned all of these weird messages about what what empowerment was as a woman and what it means to be an empowered woman. And I learned that it was like owning your sexuality and essentially participating in your own objectification. I learned that it was empowering to be on a diet. I learned that it was so empowering to wear this, that, and the other makeup. And it's bullshit. (laughs) I mean, I keep throwing the word around, but I feel like so much of what is sold to women and so much of just my past experiences have been complete and utter bullshit. Because I think about power... I'm sorry, I think about empowerment for women as a base need. We need to feel empowered to do anything substantial or significant in this world. But I feel like empowerment is sold to women as an end goal, where all you need to do is be empowered. But then what? What do you do once you are empowered? And so it's something that I've been struggling with, or at least it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, because now I do feel as though I have a general sense of self-confidence. I typically feel pretty good about myself and 
who I am and what I am, I feel like it was absolutely necessary for me to recover from my eating disorder in order to get to that point or to no longer be participating, to no longer be actively participating in my own disempowerment. Now that I do feel as though I have a sense of empowerment, I feel as though in order to take that to the next step, to actually have legitimate power past empowerment, I need to sort of empower other women. That is my goal right now, is to make other women feel good about themselves, to help other women reach a state of empowerment so that they can then be powerful. We need to lift each other up. So there's this theory in the power literature called power basis theory um, that basically looks at the people who have power are the people who are most readily able to have their needs met. And so I think that through that lens, an eating disorder is one of the most disempowering things that you can do to yourself. And obviously it's not like it's a choice, but actively participating in your eating disorder, actively engaging in symptoms without seeking help, um, without a desire to get better is, is just stripping you of your base needs. You're never going to have power if you are starving your body, starving your brain of the nutrients that it needs in order to achieve empowerment. You need to be healthy in order to empower yourself, in order to have power over other people and have power over your life. It, it's the first step. And so I, I don't know, I think viewing my eating disorder, viewing eating disorders in general through that lens has really sort of helped me in my recovery. Because if I'm, if I'm not, and I know we talk about taking care of yourself, but if you are not meeting your base needs, if you are not in control of your, I mean, in control is not the right word, but if you are not taking sufficient and adequate care of your body, and if you're not taking sufficient and adequate care of your mind, then you cannot possibly have any sort of influence over your own life or the lives of other people. You cannot do any good in this world if you cannot take care of yourself first. Yeah, that's all making me think, and I know this is not what you do, but I, I did send you this article the other day that I've been talking about, and um, it's this idea of, I think it's actually very similar to what you study. I just know it's not what you're studying. And, but in terms of like, a, this is just chatting. I'm not asking for your expert advice, but yeah. in terms of, like you're saying, you have to have your base needs met. And so what happens when someone is put in, put in a situation, a lot of times by society, that makes it much more challenging to have their base needs met and how that affects both eating disorders and access to treatment and then also recovery. And I'm not really, I don't even know if there's a question there, but it's something that it's been really stirring around in my mind as a as a recovery coach about how to empower people that society is really like holding down. Does that make sense? You know, and and I think that's a conversation, you know, I've been doing a lot more research um, on the organization health at every size. And that's a conversation that I hear mentioned a lot is, you know, what does recovery look like when 
you live in areas or you're in a bigger body or you're of a race or a gender that um, isn't like your typical, and I'm making air quotes here, your stereotypical like eating disorder, like a thin, younger white woman. And, you know, when you're not that person, how does recovery work? You know, because it it's so much harder just to have those base needs met. Absolutely. I mean, think about the price of treatment. I mean, cost is such a prohibitive factor for so many people Right. want to get better, but can't. And I think uh, even, I mean, there's studies that show that even clinicians are fail to detect eating disorder symptoms in people who don't meet the stereotypes of eating disorders. Well, that, I was just going to say that is that, you know, one of the things in particular they were talking about were people in bigger bodies and how a lot of times eating disorders go missed or even worse go like unbelieved because, you know, your body doesn't look what, like what, like the DSM might say an anorexic body is supposed to look like. Well, I think it's interesting because so me being put for an eight-year-old being in a quote unquote bigger body and developing my relationship with food around the idea that I was supposed to be on a diet when I was at a more reasonable weight, even then I didn't, my understanding of my relationship with food was still that I needed to diet. I never learned how to have a normal, healthy relationship with food. It just wasn't what was taught to me because I grew up in a bigger body. Right. Right. The only thing taught to you was how to diet. Exactly. If you could spread any message to women that are listening to this podcast today, what would you want to say? Or what do you want to say? I guess what I would say to women is that there is so much more to life than your body. There is so much more to life than being thin, than being sexual, than being pretty, than being nice uh, to everyone, to pleasing every person you meet. You have so much power inside of you and you have such potential for making yourself happy and for making other people happy, your circumstances shape you. And there are real and legitimate systems at play that may limit or enhance your ability to succeed in any area of your life. We must be conscious of those things. We cannot avoid them. It just try not to get bogged down in what society tells you you need to be and instead be who you are. Thank you so much for listening today. The homework for today is to journal on the prompt. If I had power, if I had self-confidence and self-love and felt that I could have an impact and make a difference, what would I do? What does that dream of the future look like? Write me the story, paint me the picture, sing me the song, show me the dance of power, self-confidence and self-love. Even if right now it's just a dream of the future. As always, I want to hear from you. Email me at kristin at alwaysabeing.com if you are well into your recovery or if you are recovered to be interviewed on the podcast. Or send me your questions. What do you want to hear asks from someone in recovery? 
or what can I answer for you? As I said in my intro, my prices are pay what you can afford for my one-on-one sessions. So if you listened to this and you want to check out what I do and you think working with me might help, I mean pay what you can afford. I really mean it. So please feel free to reach out to me again. It's Kristen at alwaysabeing.com if you want to connect. For more support, check out my website, alwaysabeing.com.